This is an irreverent podcast. Check out irreverent.fm for shows from all our friends. Hello and welcome to Exvangelical. I'm your host, Blake Chastain. I hope you're all doing well and taking every precaution to keep yourself and one another healthy during this pandemic. My guest this week is Gretchen Baskerville, author of The Life-Saving Divorce, Hope for People Leaving Destructive Relationships. In this candid conversation, Gretchen describes her own experience with divorce and the problems with how divorce has been addressed in evangelical circles. Please note that this conversation contains frank discussions of causes of divorce, such as domestic violence and abuse, so if this content is triggering for you, please bear that in mind. We also discuss the ways in which scripture has been used to justify keeping people in unhealthy marriages and how Gretchen has worked in church groups to dispute this harmful theology and make space for people who need it. We also had some recording difficulties with Skype, and extra special thanks are given to my producer, Jake Lewis, for his work on this episode. Gretchen's book, blog, and other resources can be found at lifesavingdivorce.com. More information can be found in the show notes. You can support Exvangelical by liking the show on Facebook, rating and reviewing it on Apple Podcasts, and letting others know about it. You can also sign up for the Post-Evangelical Post newsletter at postevangelicalpost.com. If you want to run an ad on the show, please contact me at contact at evangelicalpodcast.com. 55% of ad read revenue will go to the Brave Commons, an organization that helps LGBTQ plus Christians on college campuses. All right, let's get into it. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Exvangelical. My guest this week is Gretchen Baskerville. She is a divorce recovery leader and researcher. For more than 20 years, she's worked with Christian women and men going through difficult, life-saving divorces, listening with compassion to those who have suffered from domestic violence, betrayal, infidelity, and emotional abuse. She helps heartbroken people find strength and courage and healing. Welcome to the show, Gretchen. Hey, thank you, Blake. Good to be here. Thank you for coming on. I like to start our conversations here on the show by getting an, an initial sense of how you grew up and what your initial short sort of exposure to Christianity or evangelicalism was. Um, so I'm very curious where your story starts. Oh, well, I was brought up in a bona fide card-carrying evangelical home <laughs> to, t- <laughs> to two very committed Christian parents who were honest, hardworking uh, very loving parents, and who taught me about the Lord. And so I accepted Christ at five years old. I attended a Christian elementary school until my parents moved. I loved the Bible. I would stay up late reading the Bible till midnight uh, from childhood on, even as a teenager, as a college student, as an adult. And uh, my father had been brought to the Lord by a college campus ministry at his university, Mm. and he was big on uh, scripture memory. And my mother had accepted Christ as a child when her parents came to the Lord. So from the time I was born, I memorized scripture, I learned to sing hymns and harmony in the car. And because my parents were kind and loving and stable, it was actually a very, very good childhood. Um, Mm -hmm. My my. My parents have been 
happily married for 60 years and counting. So um, no surprise, I went halfway across the country to Wheaton College uh, in Wheaton, Illinois, and earned a uh, bachelor's in, uh, in Bible. And that's where I realized for the first time in my life, there were other ways of viewing biblical passages. And I learned in Bible classes that over, you know, 2,000 years of church history, you know, many devout, sincere Christians who heard, who uh, took the Bible seriously, held a, a pretty wide variety of views mm-hmm. on major topics, including views that differed quite a bit from what I'd always heard. So um, when I moved back to California, uh, I was just a little bit more aware of what the alternatives were than the average person in church. And I found myself just a little bit disappointed with pastors who weren't honest about the multiple ways of interpreting scripture. But, you know, I was a nice kid. I never made a big deal about it. As, um, you know, as the oldest daughter of a well-respected elder, I liked being liked, you know, mm-hmm. and so uh, <laughs> like many of us, I, <laughs> I was just sort of pathologically nice, as most of us were taught to be, you know, didn't want to make waves. And so I just, you know, fit back into my old church. So uh, in my early 20s, of course, I was looking forward to getting married because that's what we were taught to do, right? We didn't have much of a path outside of marriage. So I followed the baby boomer version of purity culture uh, just long before I kissed dating goodbye. But we had, uh, and you you know this well, we had Elizabeth Elliot and Passion and Purity and mm-hmm. books like The Fascinating Girl and things like that. And uh, the rules back then were a little bit different. You know, we could date multiple people. In fact, we were told not to go steady too early. You know, we it was best to date several people. Before we settled on one, um, sexually we had a little bit different rules too, but we were still much stricter than the you know the free love of the '60s and '70s going on around us. Mm-hmm. So uh, our rule as uh, evangelical baby boomers uh, was uh, you know no hands wherever a bathing suit covered, uh, no premarital sex, of course, and the guy had to get your dad's permission to date. And of course, you had to be a virgin when you walked down the aisle. So that was our version of, of purity culture uh, long before uh, the whole I kiss dating goodbye thing. Right. Um, so yeah. the other part of that message, yes. Oh, yeah. I just remember Passion and Purity was definitely still like on the bookstore shelves uh, alongside I kiss dating goodbye in the 90s. When I was working, when I was working in a bookstore for my after-school job. Yeah, I mean it's it's been a fixture, and 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 although I have a lot of respect for Elizabeth Elliot, some of the message that came through her books was you must be passive, you must do a lot of mind reading, you must not ask for your needs to be met, and those are very destructive messages for anyone going into a marital situation. Mm-hmm. So, but the but the other part of that whole message in 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 my era was that women couldn't initiate anything. God's way meant that women had to be passive. But once a guy showed interest in you, you could be coy, you could be a little bit seductive, which was okay due to the message the church gave us that men wouldn't commit unless you sort of lured them 
which is a nice mm. way of saying manipulated them into marriage by by hints of enthusiastic sex. But uh, as long as you did those things, it was guaranteed from our youth pastors and you know the Christian authors and the radio broadcasts we heard that you know you would get an emotionally close, warm, loving marriage and and mind blowing sex. Hmm. So that was the promise <laughs> to both genders in this, and and I'm sure so much of evangelicalism, like it, heterosexuality is is the only option. So that was what was modeled and expected from both genders is that if you follow this particular type of playbook, then this will be the marriage that results. Yeah, that was kind of the message. And, you know, uh, the other guarantee was that marriage would mature both of you in ways that nothing else could. So marriage was seen as this cure-all for immaturity, even, even downright bad behavior. Because we were told, you know, he'll be serious. He'll get serious. He'll stop, you know, playing around once he has to support a family or, you know, she'll be more stable and give up the party world once she's married. And marriage was absolutely supposed to fix us. Mm. And uh, (laughs) the truth is that, you know, while that may apply to, you know, some people who are, you know, capable of being safe and responsible and respectful and loving it definitely isn't true of everyone you meet at church, you know, or online or at a Christian school. And so, you know, I discovered the hard way that merely following those rules really didn't guarantee a good marriage. Mm-hmm. So at this point in your story, you are back in California. This is after college. Did you meet the person you ended up marrying at college or was this after? Or we no, don't have to get into uh, that if you don't want to. We but. don't. Well, uh, I, I'll, I'll tell you my story in just a bit, but I met him, um, I met him at uh, my church's singles group. Mm, Okay. Were there any other elements uh, of this type of manifestation or type of purity culture, um, that were present that you see as different or even similar to what a lot of listeners who lived through that in the nineties experienced? Well, yeah, you, you, the millennials and the Gen Xers really got hit with a lot more of a a much more bizarre message than we got. Mm. You know, the whole thing of, you know, not even kissing until you're at the altar and, and the idea that, uh, you know, getting into the biblical patriarchy where, you know, a father might even choose your spouse for you. That just, you know, wasn't part of the evangelical world I was brought up in. So yeah, that was unheard of. And, and, as I've been interviewing people, uh, as I interviewed, I've got, oh, wow, hours of interviews and hundreds, if not thousands of pages of transcripts. I found uh, so many, both men and women, who'd been raised in biblical patriarchy and this purity culture. And all of them would say that those messages just destroyed their marriages, set them up for marrying really inappropriate, very dangerous people who just had no ability to make a safe and loving life together. And yet they felt that they were stuck mm. because those were, that was also part of the marriage uh, message that was given to us. You know, you had to, you were, you and God could make it and you and a godly spouse could unilaterally turn around a bad marriage. Mm. Yeah. Going back to to what you mentioned earlier about marriage being the solution or the thing that fixes people 
or relationships. Yeah, Yeah, Hmm. exactly. Exactly. So when did you start to feel disillusioned with evangelicalism? Well, it took about 10 years, I would say. I moved back to Los Angeles. I worked for a Christian organization and it was time to get married in my mind, you know, as a young person from a genuinely Christian home and, uh, Part of the package I saw for my life was to be an affectionate wife and a loving mother. And so I just set out to do everything right. I know many people listening were the rebels, but I was one of the goody two-shoes. And so by golly, I was going to do everything right. And so um, like many other Christians, I met and married someone from my church singles group. And my parents approved of our dating. Of course, we we did that step. You know, the guy asks the father if he can date his daughter, and my father gave permission. And about a year into us dating, by this time I'm head over heels in love, um, my boyfriend says that he used to have a sexual addiction, but it was long in the past. And um, I thought, oh, Oh boy, I I didn't factor that in. That's not what I want to hear. Uh, I'm totally in love with this guy. Maybe we could go see, you know, um, a counselor. It was a pastoral counselor, and and uh, but he did have his uh, MFT, so he was licensed. And uh, so, <laughs> you know, where this story's going to go? You know, he was convinced that my love would heal my fiance's wounds from childhood. He spent many, many months counseling us. And he was confident because he'd bought into that myth that everything would be fine after the marriage. And what I realize now is that he ignored all the psychological literature that said the opposite. Mm-hmm. In this particular situation, this is, this is a, a situation that is resistant to treatment and uh, has very low likelihood or no likelihood of ever turning around. So, but did he tell me that? No. So I believed my boyfriend, later fiance, and I believed our counselor. Why would, why would he, why would he lead me in the wrong direction? He cared about me. So I was looking forward to a great marriage. You know, I believed my pastor was right. That must be, you know, the way things worked. So I was a radiant virgin bride in a beautiful white dress you know, and I loved my husband and I was attracted to him and I was looking forward to a passionate sex life. And, um, you know, we had the big, gigantic 300 person wedding at the church my family had attended for years. And, uh, you know, everybody came. But uh, as you can probably guess, by the way, I'm telling this story, you know, the sexual addiction was not long ago. Uh, it was now. And after our wedding, he started acting out again. And uh, he admitted to me that he had started acting out again. I never, I never caught him. Uh, and we tried everything, Christian counseling, Sexaholics Anonymous. Uh, and he just always said he was fine. And um, later, several years later, he again confessed to me, you know, I've acted out. But, but no worries, I'm, I've got a really great therapist now who really you know, understand sexual addictions. And, you know, it was just one of those things where all those myths, you know, forgive and forget, 
go the extra mile, you know, be that generous wife, believe in your husband, you and God can make it happen. If a couple believes in the Lord, you know, God will heal any marriage. I believed every single of what I call a life-saving divorce. And on top of that, I was pregnant at the time. And I do find that people with these kinds of problems, whether they're abusers or um, infidelity or sexual immorality, oftentimes they wait until you're particularly vulnerable. And and in this case, uh, I was pregnant at the time and I was desperate. I didn't feel like I had a choice. So to be a good wife, I had been trained all through my life that I had to just forgive again and again and again. And if I forgave, well, that cleared the slate. So I now had to pretend that nothing had ever happened. So it was like starting at zero again. So I had to wait for something really horrible to happen Mm. before I could ever consider um, a divorce or something like that because I had already forgiven. And somehow, magically, I was supposed to all... all, um, be able to forget and to pretend it never existed. And in fact, somehow this actually made it disappear spiritually. Well, that's just not sensible and it's not wise, but that's, that's the place I was in. Those were the messages I heard all through, I was, uh, through, uh, my early years. And so of course, instead of our marriage getting better, it went downhill and I comforted myself by saying, you know, happiness in marriage is overrated, or we we all heard in, in passion and purity, you know, happiness, uh, holiness over happiness, things like that. So, you know, we went to more Christian counseling. I prayed, I fasted, we went to church marriage retreats. Um, but because he, uh, you know, uh, and he and he hit it well. Uh, but by this time, you know, we had children, and like you know, most good parents in a, in a really terrible marriage, you know, I was terrified about what divorce might do to my children. Uh, they were in their preschool years and I was incredibly worried that I did not know that already 10 years before then already psychologists were telling people if you're in a high distress or a very high distress marriage, it's actually better for the children if you get out. Nobody told me that. So as a committed Christian, you know, I was, I loved my husband. I was prepared for the normal up and downs of marriage. I, you know, I was real, you know, I didn't expect, you know, wedded bliss and flowers and champagne. But, you know, over time, I saw kind of some abnormal behaviors, and I ignored them and pretended I didn't see them. And then, you know, there were more incidents, and I doubled down, and we went to counseling, and I just told myself, we're going to solve this. I, I wanted my marriage, and we were so active in our church, and I would hear those pastors say, you know, that 95% of divorce was just for falling out of love. And I was not going to be one of those people. I was not going to be that quitter. Um, you know, you'll, you'll see on the Focus on the Family website uh, right, right now, last I checked, there's a, a whole article on how all of us divorcees just took the easy way out, that we were just looking for a grass is greener divorce. I can guarantee you from interviewing so many people that that just isn't true. We were in seriously troubled uh, marriages, and we needed to get out. 
So, um, you know, what was I going to do? You know, lie, years of lies and, you know, secrecy and mistrust and sexual immorality that was never, ever resolved. And, you know, I had no confidence or any evidence, any kind of improvement, just sort of this vague evangelical messagey message that I was supposed to have hope and believe that, you know, God would work a miracle. And, um, so even though I didn't say anything in front of the kids, they were little, I mean, there was no way I was going to say anything in front of them. Mm-hmm. You know, my, I, my kids actually started acting out due to the tension in the home, the tension and the anxiety and the agitation in the home. So, uh, finally there was a last straw and I was just rendered completely numb. I was in shock. I was numb. I wasn't even thinking. I was just acting viscerally. And I said to my husband, you've got to leave. Leave. Take your stuff. Go. Get out of here. This has got to end. And that's when I decided we needed a life-saving divorce. So, um, you know, it's very difficult for the evangelical world. And this is where my disillusionment started. I realized that even though we were taught that there were some divorces that were acceptable and were biblical grounds and were okay with God, it turned out that now we were actually treated um, at even, even those of us who were innocent divorcees, we were being treated as second-class Christians. We lost our social standing. We lost our good reputation. Mm-hmm. You know, for many of, of uh, people in this situation, uh, they lose their place on the worship team. Uh, pastors will lose their jobs, even if they were the innocent spouse to an adulterous, uh, an adulter- uh, adulterous spouse, or lose their position as a small group leader. And somehow, even though we were the innocent ones, even though we were the ones who sacrificed everything. We're now the ones suspect, like it's somehow our fault. Right. And we, and and that's just, you know, that's just crazy. Right. Yeah. Um, being punished for being a victim or being victimized. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Evangelicalism well, we thrives exactly. at that. <laughs> They're very good at that. <laughs> yes. And here, all we are guilty of is doing exactly what they taught us to do. Right. They taught us to have hope to trust and keep trying in our marriages. Mm -hmm. We were taught to be generous. We were taught that our love to be loving and giving to our spouse. And so we did forgive over and over and over again. And as I interviewed people in 20 and 30 year marriages who went back day after day into abusive situations, of course we did. That's what we were taught to do. And so, um, you know, we were taught that God would, you know, just give God time. God will work a miracle. And, uh, that we, and, and another myth we were told was that our love, actually the love of Jesus inside of us, would heal anyone. You know, we just needed to hang in there. And uh, we were taught that if we, you know, prayed enough and fasted enough and were godly and loving and sweet enough and we submitted enough, God would heal any marriage. And... For 40, for 40% of people in America who have divorced, that's just not true because 40% of divorcees in the U.S. divorced for really serious reasons, for um, infidelity, violence, you know, emotional abuse, you know, that kind of contempt 
that that and uh, uh, just um, that grinds away at these marriages, sexual immorality, that represents not 5% of divorces, but nearly half. And mm. nobody ever told us that. Nobody told us that. So um, it just irritated me that I would still hear sermons about 95% of divorce was frivolous. And that's just not true. And there are multiple studies that say that's not true. Um, there, um, there are at least four studies. So it's it's not just one study. It's it's the four most important studies out there. Will say about half of divorces in America are for terrible things, just serious things, and that's what I call these. These saving divorces, and that's why I write, wrote the book, The Life Saving Divorce. And it's it's specifically for people, people like us, you know, who entered their marriage believing that they could hold it together, just as Christian authors and broadcasters and pastors and youth pastors told us. Um, and that might those messages might indeed be true for the other half of divorcees. Maybe they could have tried a little harder, but it's not true for us. And so, you know, we we proved, we went back into these marriages day after day, week after week, month after month. We proved beyond a shadow of a doubt that we believed in the sanctity of marriage. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we walked right back in and we're willing to give it another go. I mean, we proved every day we walked back in there that we were committed more than any normal person would be when we risked our sanity and our health and we, we went the extra mile over and over again. So, you know, how many days do we have to prove that to ourselves (laughs) and to a pastor? Right. Yeah. And to your point, and you mentioned earlier that you're, that you described yourself as like a goody, goody two shoes or someone that follows the, followed all the rules and everything. And I think that speaks to, what a lot of people feel and especially why things can become so delusional is, or disillusioning rather is because it's the people that really take these messages to heart and really try to live them out that do stay those stay longer and they, they try to make lots of attempts and main stay in environments and in relationships that might be abusive or, or unhealthy um, because of that desire to be good based on that metric, right? But that metric is actually the thing that wasn't good for us. Well, I, I'm so glad you brought that up because researchers have actually discovered that that's true. And back in 2005, researchers were scratching their heads saying, why are these people in the absolute worst marriages? Why do they keep thinking there's hope? Why do they keep doubling down and trying harder and thinking that they can turn this around? So it's it's actually been proven uh, and studied by researchers. We've got whole studies on this, how people like me, people like many people in the audience, tried harder than anyone would ever expect us to do. Um, and I've had pastors say, well, why didn't she just leave? Well, I said, because you told her not to. Right. I mean, we were the goody tissues. We were the ones who gave it everything we we had. 
And now I look at the power we gave to pastors, how much we wanted to please those pastors. And now I would say they don't get a vote. They have no skin in the game. It's not their body being beaten. It's not their children being abused. It's not their bank account being emptied for gambling or drugs or alcohol. It's not them getting sexually transmitted diseases. It's not their sanity or their life, and they don't get a vote. Mm. And so that was, that was a turning point for me. I realized they can stand up there behind their pulpits and broad radio broadcasters can talk on and on about how we need to keep trying. But you know what? They pay no price for that. We're the ones who pay the price. And that made me angry. And that that's a justifiable, that's a righteous anger. Yeah. And it's just not right for, for us to go through that. So um, it's, it's interesting. I I've already mentioned that half of nearly half of divorces in America are for life-saving reasons. I mean, not for falling out of love, not because they were bored, not because they missed the party life, uh, not for, because they were looking for the grass is greener and just looking for another mate. Um, you know, it's all these myths that we were taught about divorce, almost all of them are wrong. Uh, let me give you an example. I'll tell you a story that's in my book. Very few people listening to this podcast are old enough to, to remember or to know, maybe your parents, or your grandparents, how tough it was to get a divorce in the United States prior to 1969. Every single state had different laws about divorce. There were some states that had maybe eight or 10 or 12 reasons that you could divorce. There were other states that had only one, like only adultery. And so up until 1969, um, you had to meet this, you had to fall into the criteria for divorce. And you had to go before a judge and offer evidence of that bad behavior before the court, unless your spouse would confess, which usually they wouldn't do. And if the judge didn't think your evidence met the criteria, he pr might say no. He probably would say no. So the judge wouldn't grant you the divorce. Despite all the money you spent to go to court, they'd send you right back into a terrible situation. And just because you didn't have the money to hire a private investigator or a tough attorney, or you lived in a state that didn't accept abuse for a reason uh, for divorce, I mean, you were stuck. That's what it was like before 1969. In 1969, then Republican Governor Ronald Reagan in California passed the first no-fault divorce law. And from that point on, for the next 14 years, nearly all 50 states passed some version of no-fault divorce. And researchers saw this as a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. What would this do to the mental health of people in marriages? Hmm. How would it affect society? You could, never, you could never study this a second time. This is it. This was their opportunity. And so they discovered this study in the Journal of Economics from Harvard. And here's what they discovered. Over the course of the years, they saw that the suicide rate for wives dropped about 20%. Wow. The domestic violence rate 
by and against both men and women dropped 30%. And the homicide rate of women murdered by an intimate dropped 5 to, to 5 to 10%. Wow. So what we're saying here, yes, exactly. By making divorce hard to get, by discouraging people from getting divorced, we're killing them. The message that you must stay married to this abusive person is killing people, men and women, because I certainly know that men are uh, uh, abuse victims as well. I interviewed several for my book. I dedicated a whole chapter to them. So we've got a serious problem with our evangelical churches blocking much-needed divorces. And again, the pastors kind of innocently ask, well, why does she keep going back? Well, because you told her to. Mm. Because you told her to. So uh, in my book, I've identified 27 of these false messages, these myths, I call them, about marriage and divorce. And, uh, you know, like um, it, it always takes two to tango. If you're on, uh, for those who are on Twitter or Facebook, look at uh, hashtag 27 myths. I've got it both on uh, Facebook uh, and on Twitter, and I'm going through one at a time. I'm up to my seventh myth as of this moment, but I'll get all 27 of them up there on Facebook and Twitter. But um, these are all the all the myths like, you know, you just fell out of love, <laughs> or you just didn't try hard enough, or, you know, Christians, you're Christians, so you have to forgive over and over and over, 70 times seven, which basically means forever. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, no, you can't call yourself an innocent spouse. It's your fault because it t- always takes two to tango. Or, you know, you can't you can't hold your 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 spouse. Um, you know, uh, uh, you can't hold them responsible for that abuse because you're not perfect either. He's a sinner. You're a sinner. So, you know, you don't have a leg to stand on. And you get a lot of this in the um, the these biblical nuthetic counselors. You know, as a Christian, this is myth nine. You can't demand good treatment because Christians have no rights. Ugh. And you can imagine what this does to an abused spouse. Or here's myth ten: uh, it's all your fault because you didn't give your spouse enough sex. Well, you know, giving more sex isn't going to stop a cheater from cheating or a pedophile from diddling kids, or somebody who's addicted to porn, it's it's not going to stop them from continuing on. Um, or myth 12, it's, not, it's your fault because you didn't submit enough. I mean, oh, in these interviews, these women completely submitted to the point of just being almost personally erasing themselves. They, they, they had no voice. They couldn't even give an opinion. They had no veto power. They um, they didn't even have an opinion of what restaurant they were going to go. Their husbands would even ask them for help with managing the finances. And these women would say, no, I've been taught that if I give you any advice at all, I'm usurping your position. And so these women, because of these messages they were brought up with, and some, in some cases, men too. It just went downhill and downhill and downhill. Another great myth that I hear all the time is myth 13, the person who files for divorce caused the divorce. 
when in reality it's it's the treacherous person who causes the divorce the the innocent faithful party is just bringing the paperwork up to date to reflect what reality is and then another uh uh myth 18 god forbids all divorce and many many people believe uh, uh that divorce is the unpardonable sin wow uh, that's and then that's shocking i mean i i believe it i believe that that could be taught in like a very fundamentalist church um but wow that's that is yeah. just that is no escape <laughs> like yeah yeah exactly and i'm i uh, interviewed several people who finally said if divorce is the unpardonable sin i'm going to go for it anyway because i'm i won't be alive tomorrow if i don't get out of here mm. and my children won't be alive tomorrow if i don't get out of here so i'm just going to risk it who cares um, and unfortunately, uh, and we'll talk about this in a bit if you've got time, it turns out that Malachi 2.15 and 16 is incorrectly translated in a lot of our versions, uh, a lot of our English uh, translations, and it's just sickening to realize that we've been repeating this over and over, and that's not even what a Hebrew interlinear Bible says online, mm-hmm. and people can check it themselves. Uh, but here's, an, here's another example of a myth. Myth 19, and this is the John Piper myth, your divorce will shatter the image of Christ in the church. I mean, I can't think of anything more pathetic. <laughs> uh, yeah, John Piper uh, is off his rocker in a lot of <laughs> So, <laughs> No his... human being in my mind is, is powerful enough to shatter the image of Christ in the church. I mean, uh, how is it that abuse and betrayal don't shatter the image of Christ in the church. Yeah. No, it just, it just doesn't make any sense. Yeah. So, uh, and then um, uh, one more sample of one of my myths, uh, myth 21, divorce will destroy your children. And so you have to say, you have to stay for the sake of your children. And we now know, we've known for over 20 years, Blake, that, that uh, in these high distress and very high distress marriages it's it can be as much as 10 times better to get your children out and it's i i just can't believe that this information was never told to us that this information it's almost like evangelicalism has this bubble there are all these researchers working away telling us publishing major articles telling us how bad it is to raise kids in abusive, uh, high-conflict homes, and yet it never penetrated to our pastors, to focus on the family, to Christian websites. Nobody ever told us. So, you know, it's it's just shocking to me. And my book has all the, I give, I know that I'm going to get pushback, so I, I put in every single link to, I have over 200 footnotes in this book, every single link and every single footnote to every single research paper that's been published on this topic that that uh, specifically deals with this area. And I just feel like we got betrayed. Evangelicalism yeah. betrayed us. Yeah. Um, and, you know, how, 
you know, it's, it's very hard to find evangelicalism to be safe anymore. It's definitely not safe for divorcees, or at least a lot of evangelical churches aren't. I happen to attend a really good one where my pastor um, is, um, you know, does view both physical and emotional abuse as grounds for divorce. But a lot of evangelical churches don't, and I'm not sure that they're safe enough to be in right now Mm -hmm. for people going through divorce. So that's kind of... um, that's kind of where I'm at with my my walk through this whole topic. And I want our churches to become more safe for divorcees, but it's going to take a lot of years. And it doesn't surprise me one bit that so many evangelical divorcees switched churches, left evangelicalism, and in many cases where the abuse was just just very serious, uh, walked away from their faith because they started to view God as being the same egotistic narcissist that their abuser was. Mm-hmm. And if God is that egotistical and narcissistic that he thinks that what was done to me was okay, then he's not a God I want. Right. And I totally, totally understand that. Yeah. Yeah. I do too. I, I totally I see that as a valid choice. If that's your lived experience, it's, it's hard to overcome that. And it's what you mentioned about evangelicalism being like betraying us. Uh, I, I had a, one friend described it to me as, as if being sold a false bill of goods was, was his metaphor. Um, and I, I think you're right that so much of, even though all of these, these studies have been going on for decades evangelicals were shielded from it because leaders within those, within those groups wanted to serve an ideology over people. Um, they were right. to ensure that their particular worldview was the one that was taught and attempted to be followed. And it ends up hurting people um, of all stripes and including those that really want to believe sincerely in this in these messages. Um, I'd like to hear more about uh, like your role within your church and, and also the different sort of support groups and things that you've, that you've developed over the years and your role in trying to make these spaces safer or um, more accessible to divorcees or people that are exploring that as an option because their intimate relationships, their marriages aren't, not safe or they're making a very serious decision uh, about what, how to move forward. Yeah. I think that um, it's tough in evangelical. In fact, I'm, I am finding some good divorce uh, recovery curriculum out there that doesn't leave evangelicals in shame. And a lot of it does. Uh, And I'll, I'll give you some that you could put up on your show notes, but I do think that, if we really want to, uh, I almost hesitate to say this because there's a certain point at which you really can't fight city hall, right? If you're at a church where the leadership preaches sermons like, if you walk away from Jesus, you're walking, uh, I'm sorry, if you walk away from your marriage, you're walking away from Jesus. That's probably not the right church to be in. Um, Yeah. uh, Another pastor said 
divorce never makes thing better. It just gives you different problems. And I, 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 I'm sitting there and here I am leading a divorce recovery group in his church. Wow. And it's full of domestic violence victims. And I can guarantee you that they think that divorce made something better. I mean, now they're, they're not living with being abused every day or not every day, but, you know, always walking on eggshells, wondering when he's going to go off next. And so if you're in a church like that, I mean, you, you, you've got to get out of there. I mean, those, those churches aren't going to make any headway at all. And, and, um, I ended up switching churches as a result of that and finding, I actually interviewed my, my pastor to be, and I said, I want to know what you feel about the topic of divorce, because I, if I come to your church, I'm going to bring my entire divorce recovery group and single mothers group with me. And, uh, he, we talked about it for a long time and he said, I would love to have your group at my church. So I switched the, switched churches and took everyone with me. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, it, sorry, I, I don't know. Are you still there? I'm here. Um, Hello. Okay. Hold on. I'm going to, yeah. One second here. Okay, so you may have heard some transition music on the track for this episode, but for Gretchen and I, it's been over a month since we last talked. We ran into some bad technical difficulties, um, and then just with all the realities of sheltering in place, we are reconnecting now to finish our conversation. Gretchen, what we were talking about before we ran into our Skype problems, to be just frank with the audience, (laughs) uh, was your work in spiritual communities and how you still hold these divorce recovery groups in churches. I'm curious to hear your thoughts about why that work in those communities is important. Even though some people that listen to this show may have walked away from the church, there are others that are in sort of more in-between places and also may really need some guidance or advice or just hearing from someone who has had a divorce uh, and needs a divorce recovery group in that particular type of community. Could you talk about your your work in churches and and what you like to do and are able to provide to those those people in need there? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's it's no surprise to anyone that faith is a big uh, component in in the divorce process because uh, for those who are raised uh, in devoutly Christian evangelical homes, we were taught from day one that marriage was our goal. And so, uh, and then there were all sorts of messages that came with that, you know, that God hates divorce, that, you know, anybody who divorces was just a quitter who took the easy way out. Um, All sorts of messages, you know, you just need to submit more, more sex, uh, be more agreeable, forgive and forget. All these messages came to us. And so when a, when a devout Christian goes through a divorce where they are starting to have marital problems, the very first person they go to is probably someone in the church. It may not be the pastor, because actually, in reality, uh, when marriage problems get to be that bad, a lot of people actually uh, avoid their pastor. Uh, they're just worried about being criticized or, um, you know, um, browbeaten. At any rate, 
the whole issue, though, of faith and what God feels about my marital problems, about my divorce, about me leaving are really major to people. And so the people who come to my divorce recovery groups are those people who say, how does God feel about this? The people who don't care, you know, they're they're fine. They move on. Uh, I had one um, person say to me, why would you even write a book about divorce? I mean, everybody divorces. And I said, well, that's not true for anybody with a devout, really deeply conservative religious background, whether it's Christian or Muslim or Hindu or whatever it is. You really have a lot of issues about that, and you really want to know you know, how God feels about this kind of thing. And so a lot of the work we do in my groups is about the spiritual abuse, the incorrect, the false messages that the church hammers at us, telling us that we can't divorce, telling us it's the unpardonable sin, uh, telling us that God hates divorce. And and so working through that kind of thing um, uh, is is a lot of what I do in my divorce recovery groups. Mm-hmm. One of the things that, that you mentioned it and you've written about is the verse from Malachi, which says, or is it is translated as God hates divorce. Mm-hmm. And that is something that has been used in churches to justify maintaining abusive relationships or staying in them, but from a lot of pastors. Could you talk a little bit about that and how people's interpretation and the way in which they've sort of absorbed that teaching is something that they need to address. Right, right. This is this is the verse that the permanence view pastors, and when I say permanence view, I mean no divorce for any reason. This is the verse that uh, those pastors use to hold people in uh, abusive marriages, unfaithful marriages, marriages where there's pedophilia, um, just all kinds of uh, neglect, uh, emotional abuse, so forth. Uh, and that is Malachi 2, 15 and 16, which they blithely just um, say, you know, uh, they quote it as saying, God hates divorce or I hate divorce. And and uh, for people like me brought up in, in evangelicalism, I usually, I used to just kind of ignore that verse because I knew that from the Gospels that Jesus allowed for divorce. I knew from the epistles that Paul uh, allowed for divorce. But these voices, these permanence few voices, these pastors uh, have gotten louder and louder recently. And so um, what's really interesting about Malachi 2 is that whole section is on God condemning uh, these men, sorry, uh, picking on men here, but who are fakers and con artists and how God sees right through them. So they, they here they are committing spiritual adultery. They're worshiping other gods and so forth, but they, you know, bring their sacrifice to the altar and they weep tears of repentance, but God sees through it. And so it's in this section of Malachi 2 that we hear about divorce. And it's very interesting. The major modern uh, translations of the Bible do not translate the Hebrew as I hate divorce. The actual you know, Hebrew text does not say I hate divorce. So let me give you proof of that. Uh, here is the New International Version. They do not tr- uh, translate it as I hate divorce. They say, so be on your guard and do not be unfaithful to the wife of your youth. The man who hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord God of Israel, does violence to the one he should protect, says the 
Lord Almighty. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful. Well, I don't hear anything in there that says I hate divorce. I hear a, a pretty uh, pissed off God saying, you know, if you're going to be unfaithful to her, you're going to be treacherous to her. You're going to hate her and divorce her. You're doing it wrong. Let's look at the English Standard Version, the ESV from Crossway. It, it also does not say I hate divorce. It says, let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord God of Israel, covers his clothes with violence. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not be faithless. Well, there's nothing in there about God hating all divorce. This is God saying, I hate treacherous divorce. And when we look at the um, Christian standard uh, version of the Bible, the CSB, published by Lifeway, that's the Southern Baptist uh, publisher. It, 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 it says about the same thing that both of these versions do, and also includes the word injustice, because back in Old Testament times, you could divorce, but it had to be a just divorce. There had to be a just cause for divorce. So this was a shock to me, that, to realize that the key modern major versions of the Bible no longer translate the Hebrew that way into English. Mm -hmm. So, and, and I just, I bring that up because that holds a lot of people in abusive marriages. Right. I'm honestly a little surprised that the ES, like the ESV is known for having a very uh, complementarian slant. Complementarian being the opposite of egalitarian and saying that, that there are strict gender roles in, in marriage and in, and in the church and that sort of, in society in general and a male superiority, that sort of thing that, and that the ESV uh, says that <laughs> is, is surprising and actually good because generally they, <laughs> the, the other sort of verses like in first Timothy and others are that are used to keep women in submission typically don't, don't have that sort of open interpretation. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's, it's, it's a, it's a, it was a surprise to me. It was, it was good to see from the ESV. Mm-hmm. So that verse, has it come up a lot in your work as far as one that, that people say they've struggled with? Yeah, I get that. I get that question all the time. And I have a blog post on it on my uh, site. Um, and that's one of my most viewed blog, blog posts. That one. Uh, also, uh, the blog post about the myth that says if you're the one who filed for divorce, you're the one who caused the divorce. That's another common myth. Um, so there's a lot of these uh, spiritually abusive messages that we get from pastors, from church leaders. We get it from Christian radio programs. We get it from Christian websites. Um, and it's so it's such a problem. I started wondering. Um, I went. I was brought up in a mega church, and when I found out from Barna Group that one in four conservative Christians had ever been through a divorce, I looked at my church and I said, no way, how can I be at a 2000 member church? And I don't see 500 people here who've ever been through a divorce. I might know maybe 10, maybe 15. And I was brought up in this church. So where are they? Well, it, you know, it turns out that there's so much shame in evangelicalism around this you know, divorce issue. And because divorce was made back in the 1980s as evidence of moral decay and a decline in family values. And as that, as, as divorce became the boogeyman, what happened is churches then had to turn a deaf ear 
to uh, abuse victims. Mm. So I would counter that by saying divorce is not evidence of moral decay. Tolerating and ignoring abusive marriages is. And um, and and this is this is actually something that has come back to really hurt the evangelical church. Just two months ago, in February 2020, uh, Christianity Today put out a really interesting article. And at the bottom of the article, it was about, uh, it, the article was about, um, it was called, Despite Stigma, More Divorced Evangelicals Are Going to Church. And I thought, well, that's that's interesting. Uh, and uh, But as I looked and read down to the very bottom of the article, I found the graph that explained what I had been seeing all my life. Where are all the divorces? Um, and what it said was that um, divorced Christians really find evangelicalism to be a hostile place for us. And whereas divorced uh, black Protestants will attend just as much as married, divorced, married, I'm sorry, married black Protestants, whereas divorced mainline um, Christians will attend just as much as married ones do, whereas divorced Catholics attend just as much as married Catholics do. That is not true with evangelicals. There's this huge attendance gap with evangelicals. And I think that the birds have come home to roost with all those negative false messages we were given about divorcees being quitters and uh, who cared only for the Hollywood lifestyle, who didn't care about their children. All of those messages are coming back to roost because uh, we know that nearly half of divorces in America are for really serious things, um, really dangerous things, infidelity, sexual immorality, pedophilia, uh, domestic violence, emotional abuse, and so on. So evangelicals will still claim that they're evangelical, but they just don't want to attend church because they're sick and tired of hearing the pastor grind on these messages over and over again. Uh, for me, the the turning point, uh, the reason I left my former church was due to two sermons. One that said, if you walk away from your marriage, you're walking away from Jesus. And that was said five times in one sermon with no explanation. The other uh, statement that was said by another, these are both seasoned pastors. These weren't, you know, new pastors straight out of seminary. These were guys who should have known better. The other pastor said, divorce never makes anything better. It just gives you different problems. Well, here I am running a, do a domestic violence group right in his church. And I, I, I couldn't believe it. I said, you, you have no idea what's happening in your very own church. Three quarters of the women in my divorce recovery groups have been beaten, slammed, their heads slammed against the wall, strangled. Uh, you know, this is, this is bad. And uh, don't tell me that divorce didn't uh, solve their problems. Divorce solved a lot of their problems. Uh, sure, you know, they're just struggling financially. They had, you know, they had to go through the whole legal process. And, you know, divorce is no fun. I mean, the whole divorce uh, court aspect is just no fun at all. And of course, that's extremely stressful. But they are much, much happier today. They have no regrets that they got out. Mm -hmm. And that just speaks to the disconnect between leadership in conservative places and the lived realities of the, the people in 
destructive relationships and in bad right. marriages and abusive marriages. Exactly. And so when they come to my group, they get a whole different message from me. Uh, we actually examine the 27 myths that uh, these false messages that our churches give us. And we hear from Christian radio and so on and so forth. And I sit down with them and I say, you know what? I see you. I hear you. I spend a whole hour listening to every, each person's story. Um, I can tell from listening to them that they're the ones who bought all the marriage books. They're the ones who set up the counseling uh, appointments. They're the ones who tried hard. You know, they're the ones who prayed and fasted and went to counseling over and over. Um, but, you know, they they did their absolute best. They tried hard. And for anyone to accuse them of not trying hard is just uh, simply arrogance and, and tone deafness. And the other thing I, I tell them is, you know, I know you weren't a quitter or a loser who took the the uh, the easy way out. I mean, you gave it everything you had. Mm -hmm. And and then uh, just going back to early in our in our uh, in the podcast, you know, we now know that that uh, getting kids out of these abusive homes is so much better for them, so much better for their emotional health and even their physical health. And yet we never heard that from any pastors. We never heard that from radio programs. All of that was sort of concealed from us. And so uh, about eight and 10 kids of divorce come out with absolutely no serious long-term social or emotional or psychological problems. Mm. Yeah, that that is, you know, staying together for the for the kids, for for partners or spouses that are together. Uh, or a spouse, someone that's in a marriage, like that is always a concern, something that they that comes to mind just automatically if they have children is what, how will this affect them? So having that information available is is very, very important. It, it's so hard to, to delineate the different sorts of priorities or, or things that come to mind in these spaces. But are those sort of the most, the most common things? And obviously a top concern yeah. would be escaping abuse and then addressing these these negative and and false and toxic theologies and teachings as well as concern for the well-being of your children are are there any yeah. other are there other yeah are there any um, other things that that we haven't talked about that that do come up uh, amongst those those major topics yeah, you know, there is one last thing I would, I think, really bears um, discussing, and that is that we were, we, we all were told that we didn't believe in the prosperity gospel, but in reality, we really do where it comes to marriage. We mm. completely buy into formulas, and the formula was, you know, if you, um, you know, met someone at church and you were both uh, engaged in church and you loved the Lord and, you know, your he asked your dad if he could date you and you never had sex. And then he asked your dad if he could marry you. And um, you went to the altar with a white dress and you were a virgin and then you had a big, big, big wedding. These were all part of these formulas that were supposed to absolutely guarantee that you would have this wonderful, close, intimate marriage emotionally and mind-blowing sex. And what, what the other thing I really need to debunk in my 
uh, divorce recovery groups is that this is just a formula and it doesn't work. You can do all things right and you can still end up with an, in an abusive, uh, in, unfaithful, pedophile, ridden <laughs> and substance abuse uh, marriage where there's uh, mental issues, uh, personality disorders. None of this, God does not protect you, even if you did everything right, from having these kinds of problems in life. And just like you would go to a doctor if you had cancer, or you would you go to a mechanic for car problems, you need to use your best judgment and get out of there. God doesn't miraculously come and rescue you. You know, it's the old story of, you know, the the guy in a flood sitting on top of his roof and and uh, finally the flood waters overcome him. He gets to heaven. God, why didn't you miraculously save me? And God said, well, I sent you a helicopter and I sent you a canoe. You didn't, you know, you didn't get off the roof and take advantage of 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 these resources. So uh, what I'm saying is uh, God doesn't miraculously, you know, heal birth defects or cancer. So it's time for you to to engage your own two feet and and uh, get yourself to safety. Mm-hmm. So do you lead this group within your direct church or do you do this in in different uh, different communities? Um, where can people find the sort of resources that you make available for um, for people who need them. Well, my my book is fantastic. If I do say so myself, well, that, that sounds really arrogant. But my my book, The Life Saving Divorce: Hope for People Leaving Destructive Relationships, virtually has every single topic that I've already uh, discussed on this podcast. And what's more is I have 221 footnotes. So you don't have to take my word for it. I'm not a, a an attorney. I'm not a therapist. I'm not um, a, a primary sociologist, researcher type of person. I'm just a person who has been doing lay divorce recovery in churches for 20 years. And so I actually looked up all the scholarly academic studies on all of this. And so I've put every single one of them in in this book. So this book goes through a whole chapter on male victims of abuse and betrayal, an entire chapter on safe churches and friends. And I'm sorry to say most churches aren't 100% safe. Probably Mm. the best you can do is maybe... 70 or 80 percent safe. Um, there are uh, there's an entire chapter on kids and all the studies that say kids are going to really turn out fine after divorce. Um, there is a whole chapter on 150 examples of abuse, everything from physical and sexual abuse to emotional abuse, financial abuse. And then neglect is a big issue. People don't look at uh, don't identify neglect as being a form of abuse, but it really, really is. And even the Bible talks about that. Then there's, so I've got the abuse cycle diagram. I've got the Duluth wheel of power and control in there. And then a whole chapter on whether you should stay or whether you should go. And I'm not going to make that decision for anyone. Only you know what you can take. Only you know when enough is enough. Uh, And, uh, but in this chapter, I give you the 10 most common tipping points that I hear, those turning points where a person finally says, okay, now it's time to go. I do have, uh, in chapter three, I have all 27 of those myths of divorce, those false messages, 
we get. Some of them are just uh, rampant in American society in general. Americans love to get married, um, and we are not very cautious when we do it. And uh, But some of them are distinctly religious, and those are the ones that I think are really destructive to, uh, you know, and that uh, ex-evangelicals really need to know. Mm-hmm. So I do tell my own story in here. Everyone wants to know my story. I've got a bit about that. And then the whole uh, last chapter, chapter 10, is on moving on and finding happiness again. So all of the whole book is, is uh, it's, it's a bit of a thick book, but you can jump around. It's kind of done as a handbook. And that's where I'd recommend starting. And then for support, I mean, if you don't live in my area and can't come to one of my groups, I would definitely uh, join some of the private Facebook groups. There's so many Christian divorce recovery uh, private uh, groups uh, where you can really share what you really think. And uh, there's oh, there's got to be at least a dozen of them. So start looking around Facebook and you'll find them. And they are incredibly active, sharing resources, sharing books. I do have in the back of my book and on my website uh, a fantastic uh, page of books and resources that I recommend, along with a paragraph description of every single one of them. So you don't have to take, I know money's tight for a lot of people, but you can actually read through. It's uh, at lifesavingdivorce.com forward slash links. And then if you just want a really great tip sheet, I have one called Seven Ways to destroy the stigma of divorce in the church. And so if you're a Christian who's been through a divorce and you just feel like a second-class citizen, go to lifesavingdivorce.com forward slash courage. So lifesavingdivorce.com forward slash courage, and you'll get uh, you'll sign up for the email list. You'll get an email. It will have a link to the seven effective ways to destroy the stigma of uh, life-saving divorce in your church. Because uh, sure, there are divorces, we all know there are divorces that are frivolous, but uh, half of divorces in America are for life-saving reasons. Mm -hmm. And one thing that that might be a concern for a lot of people is looking these things up if they are in a controlling or abusive home um, or relationship. Uh, is there any way that you advise people that may need to reach out or get some information that are able to do so in a safe way or a way in which doesn't put them in danger? I know that's a yeah. sort of that, that's I'm, that's just a reality, and it's, it's really uh, <laughs> unfortunate to have to say, um, but that's that's the case for some people. Is there is there yeah. do you have do you have any words of um, Wisdom or words of caution uh, or just advice on how someone can safely uh, begin to explore these things if they are in that type of environment. Yeah, this is this won't be news for anyone under 50, but for those of us over 50, you know, the whole, you know, when iPhones came into existence in 2007, I believe it was, uh, the whole world changed. So now your abuser can stalk you. They can watch what you're doing. They know where you are. Um, they can install things on your phone, on your computer to uh, track your keystrokes, which enables them to capture all your passwords. They can know your browsing history and so on and so forth. So I really get how dangerous it is now for those of you who are um, in marriages or leaving marriages from people who are really tech savvy. Um, And so uh, besides the the tip of just getting yourself a new phone and and a new um, 
computer that never uses the same IP or never uses uh, touches your your home uh, Wi-Fi. You know, go 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 to libraries, use friends' um, computers, and so so forth. But I do have a way of getting my book that doesn't go through Amazon. So those of you who share an Amazon account with your abuser, you can go to gumroad.com. That's G-U-M-R-O-A-D.com. And uh, download either a PDF or an EPUB file of the life-saving divorce. Once you get to gumroad.com, just type in life-saving divorce those three words. My name is Gretchen Baskerville, and uh, you'll find either the uh, PDF or the EPUB. So uh, for many people, I have a lot of people contact me behind the scenes saying, is there any other way I can get your book uh, but through Amazon? Also, uh, if, if you really want the paperback, if you if you need the paperback, I do keep a few uh, at, at home. I don't have a lot of them, but uh, just contact me through the contact form at lifesavingdivorce.com forward slash contact, and uh, I'll I'll figure out a way of getting you a, a paperback book. Oh, okay, great. Thank you, Gretchen, for, for that additional detail. I think that could be helpful for some people who may find this interview um, and need to start to look through this information themselves. Um, thank you so uh, thank you so much for talking with me. I I know that this is not the easiest topic to talk through, not the easiest uh, topic to address. There's so many ways in which divorce can affect a, a life and their family life, their home life, their spiritual life. Um, I mean, it's it's it is a big thing, and I I know that I'm speaking that as someone who has not gone through it. Um, and I'm thankful that you are out there doing this work in existing in spaces that meeting people where they are in evangelical spaces and more conservative spaces, as well as outside of them, um, wherever people are in their particular journey, it's, it's wonderful that, that you are making these resources available for people that need to, um, need to explore the option of divorce. Um, thank you so much for your, for your work and, um, for what you do to make that information available to people. Oh, thank you, Blake. I appreciate so much what you do. Is there any other place um, or any other avenue that you'd, that you'd like to plug, uh, another website or anything else that, that we didn't mention? Um, other than the fact that I'm on Twitter, I'm very active on Twitter. I'm very active on Facebook. Uh, but looking at my own website is a pretty good place to, to go as well. So. Okay. And is that um, lifesavingdivorce.com? Uh, right. Okay, great. Mm-hmm. Got that. Gretchen, thank you so much for joining the show. Thank you, Blake. Mm-hmm.